I'm up here to introduce Sean. Now, I've known Sean for, well, since he came in back at Floral, or my home group at the time. He came in, and, and I was trying to think back, what do I remember about Sean at the time? And I just remember a whole bunch of cows, that he had a whole bunch of cows that he was trying to sell. And anyways, it was a scheme, and it was a, it was a, a drunk coming in who had problems, and he was looking for an answer. And I've had the privilege um, to be with Sean on his journey in his sobriety, a lot of ups and downs, um, and that's just our journey together as curling partners. <laughs> if you ever want to try and test your sobriety, try curling with an equally opinionated alcoholic and have him as your third. <laughs> it truly does make you grow as a person. <laughs> So, um, I was thrilled to hear that they had Sean in mind uh, before I even came on this committee. And uh, they asked me, you know, this Sean guy, what do you think of him? My immediate response, well, I have a conflict of interest. <laughs> but I know he's going to be great. So, we'll set the bar nice and high for him, and I'm sure you'll hit it. Sean, come on up here. Hi, my name's Sean, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. <laughs> That's crazy, that high. <laughs> and that is not a Canadian thing. Um, thanks, Marty, for the welcome. And um, I, I seem to, to think our curling team got a lot better once we kicked Michelle off the team. <laughs> Anyway, that's, uh, that's not why we're here today. Um, I guess I'll start off with, uh, I, I'm up here to share my experience, strength, and hope. Um, where I came from, uh, what happened, and what it's like today. Um, I got sober February 14th, the year 2000. And uh, wow, what a day. I uh, I didn't think I would ever be sober, and uh, I guess how I got there it was a lot of work. It um, every single thing in my life had to happen exactly the way it happened for me to get sober that day. And um, as I go into my story, you'll hopefully understand what I mean by that. Um, so I guess I'll start off with what it was like. Um, I was a pretty normal kid, other than the fact that I, um, I never quite seemed to fit in. And my disease of alcoholism, I believe, started long before I took a drink. Um, it was how I felt about myself. And through the years of being sober and working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've learned that my disease really is about my feelings and my actions. And those feelings and thoughts left unchecked and inside of me 
basically rotted me from the inside out. And my earliest memory of of um, of those feelings, and and I tell this story. It was long before I took a drink. Um, and it's it's easiest to describe as. I wanted to be accepted, and I wanted to be accepted by my peers, my family, and I never wanted to disappoint them. Um, I wasn't exceptionally good at school. I um, I wasn't really good at sports. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to be, but I never quite followed through with anything. I never completed anything, even before I took a drink. And I remember as a child, I would have been about three years old, or three years old, uh, grade three. So whatever that is, probably eight or nine years old. And um, my parents were going to redo my bedroom. And uh, we went out shopping, and do you want wallpaper? Do you want paint? And oh yeah, wallpaper, you know. And, and uh, my mom picked out this one, and do you like this? And it was of these sailboats. And I was like, yeah, I love it, Mom. And I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. Like, I could not stand this wallpaper. But I couldn't tell her that. I, I had an inability to tell the truth at that age. And they bought that wallpaper. <laughs> and they, they did my bedroom in this horrible wallpaper. And... Um, as soon as they were done that night, I got out of bed and I ripped it off the wall. And then I was in trouble and there was punishment, right? And I had the inability to tell the truth. You know, I couldn't say, I don't like that. I didn't want to disappoint them. And I never knew what that was. So then, as I grew older, I started drinking. I started drinking as a teenager. And... That feeling of not fitting in left me. Um, that feeling of fear and emptiness left when I drank. And uh, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you I didn't have fun when I drank, because I did. I had a lot of fun when I drank. Um, and it was manageable. I got through school. I got through... All of the things I needed to do, if I needed a 50 in algebra, I got a 51. <laughs> if I needed an 80 in geography, I got an 81. There was, I never applied myself. I applied myself enough just to get by. And um, slowly as my drinking progressed, I quit playing sports that I wasn't very good at, but I enjoyed. I slowly drifted away from family and friends. And uh, by the time I was 18 years old, I had made some career choices and decided that I wanted to become a fishing guide. <laughs> and um, I really didn't understand what that meant. But I, wanted, I really liked fishing, and I really liked the idea of people paying me to fish. So 18 years old, I hopped on a bus. Um, I was irresponsible at that time. I actually missed my flight, so I had to take a bus <laughs> to Lynn Lake, Manitoba, which went from Saskatoon to 
Winnipeg to Lynn Lake, Manitoba, and then I flew in from there to an island with no booze. <coughs> I was the there was two white guys there. The rest were from North Brochet. Um, they would have been Dene. And uh, I was an 18-year-old kid up there without booze. And um, I became a fishing guide. And um, it's funny. I, I spent that summer there, and I hated it. I knew I loved the job, but there was no alcohol. I couldn't stand not drinking. And I never understood why. So the next summer rolled around, and that winter I ran into a friend of mine who had guided at Wollaston. And uh, he said, well, you should come to our camp. We can drink all we want. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm in. And um, so I ended up becoming a fishing guide at Wollaston. And um, what freedom. I was my own boss. Like, I, in the morning I would get in the boat with a two people that wanted to spend four days fishing and drinking. And I got to do that with them. And somewhere along the way, those days blended in and I, I started drinking every day. And I can't tell you the day that it happened, but it did. I crossed that line where I became a daily drinker. And that was okay. Like, I always say that um, it didn't matter to me that I drank alcoholically. I still had my life. I still had my job. I still had girlfriends. I, I could still afford to do things. And along the way, I was rewarded. I became successful at what I did. I ended up becoming the general manager of the best fishing lodge in Canada. We were rated the third best fishing destination in the world at one point by ESPN Sports. And um, and that point of my drinking career, I was a daily drinker. And I didn't think it was affecting anybody. But I was still empty the way I felt inside. And I went through two sets of ownership groups there. And uh, the second one happened to be from Chicago. Um, and that, that group and that man that bought that fish and lodge, um, wow. They, uh, they trusted me with a whole bunch of stuff. And when you trust an active alcoholic with a whole bunch of stuff, you're probably going to be disappointed. <laughs> so they ended up taking over the Fish and Lodge um, September 1st of the year 1999. And what happened was I went to two sports shows in the States in September. I was in Houston and somewhere else, I think, Phoenix. And by this point, my alcoholism had blossomed to a point where I couldn't stand to be in my own skin. I would go to bed every night and I would pray not to wake up. And for those alcoholics in this room, you'll understand this, that when I would lay down in bed, I couldn't shut off my mind. My mind would race. And the only thing that would quiet my mind was to drink. And I had to increasingly drink more and more. And then the booze quit working. <laughs> that really sucks, hey? Because when the booze quits working, what do you do? How do you become what you've always been? 
you don't you don't have that mask or that shield around you any longer that that protects you from the outside world and when bryson spoke yesterday about um, not knowing the rules wow like I always say when I speak, I miss that day in grade three or four or five where they pull you aside and they say, oh, by the way, you got to pay your bills. By the way, you got to be a good friend and what that means. By the way, when you grow up and get a job, you have to go do it every day in a row. And I'm pretty sure they still do that. Like, my my son's in grade two, and I can't wait for the day he comes home and says, Dad, they, they taught me about that life thing, hey? Here's the manual. Because I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to learn those things. Um, so along the way, uh, that fall, the booze had quit working. I um, I was lost. I I didn't have mirrors in my my house any longer. I couldn't stand to look at myself, and um, and I prayed to die each and every day, and I didn't have the courage to to kill myself, but I thought about it every day, and um, and it was such a lonely, dark place that I would never wish upon anybody, ever. Um, so what happened was, um, well, I was down at one of these sports shows. I was fortunate enough to work for a company that owned their own airplanes and um, and the father-in-law was very, very wealthy and it blows my mind to this day that I had this life. So I'm sitting on an airplane with a man that's got more money than he knows what to do with and very little common sense at this point. And he says, you know, I was looking in this cattle magazine <laughs> And I'd like you to go to Edmonton, Leduc, actually. You ever been there? And I'm like, mm, Edmonton, yeah, Leduc, I don't know. I'd like you to go there and buy this cow and its calf for me. And it doesn't matter how much it costs, just go buy it and uh, get it to Missouri for me. Okay, Dave. <laughs> so he transfers like 20 grand into my bank account. Well, that's that's pretty good for an alcoholic who... The booze isn't working and life is in shambles. And I hadn't paid my taxes in probably five years. On top of it all, it was part of that day in school where they teach you that you got to pay taxes too. I missed that part. Um, so I went out to Leduc and I bought these cattle. And um, I didn't pay for them. I got them, and I took the cattle to Prince Albert, and I spent the money on booze, drugs, women, and I probably wasted a bit of money, too. <laughs> <laughs> so that was in October, and Christmas rolls around, and the owner of the cattle that I had bought... Um, is calling, wondering where the money is, and I don't have the money. And he's threatening to call the RCMP. And my boss in Missouri, or Chicago, but he's got a ranch in Missouri, says, well, where are the cows? Oh, well, you know, i got to get them cleared through customs, and the vet's got to come out. Like, lies, lies. We lie. That's what we do as alcoholics. 
Um, so I, I've got all these balls in the air. And I owe Revenue Canada $86,000. So they are slowly closing in on me as well. And I continue to drink. And um, I ended up going to one more sports show in the States um, in December. I came home. I got off the plane. I didn't get my luggage. I went straight to the Viking Club. I had two shots of tequila, and I stayed drunk until February 14th. And in that three months, I became homeless. I became jobless, and I was living in the parkade of Market Mall in January and February in Saskatoon. I had a 1981 Ford truck that wouldn't start, and I was living in that in the parkade. And for the most part, when it would start, I actually did sleep in the parkade, but in the end, I had parked it upstairs outside in the cold. So so on February 14th, I had $20 left to my name, and I went into the Coachman Bar, and um, I spent that last $20 on a pitcher of really bad draft beer. And if I would have known that was my last drink, I would have ordered gin and tonic, squeeze the lime. <laughs> but who knew? So I sat down with this pitcher of draft, and at this point, um, I was crying uncontrollably, and I knew something had to change. And I walked into the bathroom, and in Alcoholics Anonymous, we talk of a jumping-off point or a moment of clarity and I walked by a mirror. <laughs> Mirrors suck, eh? <laughs> and, and I had to walk by the mirror to get to the urinals in the coachman. And, and I saw myself, and I saw myself for exactly who I was for that moment. I was no longer this guy with a great job who could be with anybody he wanted to be with, who was fun, who wanted... I had lots of friends. I was a drunken, drug addict, homeless bum. And I don't know, other than a moment of clarity, that I saw myself for exactly who I was. And in that moment, I walked out of that bathroom, and I got on the phone, and I called a guy. <laughs> and he wasn't there. <laughs> and um, through tears, I left a message, and I said... I asked for help. I said, this is where I'm at. I need you to come here and get me. I didn't even have my own strength or my own power to walk out of that bar alone. I was so scared and I was so full of fear that I didn't know what laid in front of me. And, and here's the crazy part. I had been to Alcoholics Anonymous nine years prior. I got tricked. I don't know how I ended up there. It was welcome group. It was a Saturday night. I would have been a teenager at the time, and a friend of mine from school had taken me there. And I looked around the room, and every one of you was different. That wasn't me. I looked at all of the differences. That's not me. I still have a birthday coming up. I still have this. I still have a job. And I couldn't relate with anything you said to me. 
And I walked out of that meeting and I got drunk and I stayed drunk for nine more years. So this guy ends up walking in to the coachman that night and um, his name was Rocky. <laughs> and his real name, given real name, was Rocky. And um, he picked me up and took me over to another guy's house named Evil. <laughs> and those two guys stayed with me for the next 12 to 18 hours. And here's that cunning, baffling part that we talk about in Alcoholics Anonymous. These two guys came and got me. I didn't have anything. I didn't have any money. I hadn't changed my clothes. I didn't have soap. I didn't have a toothbrush. I had nothing. These two guys came and got me. That morning they said, what are you going to do? So I said, well, I, I need to go somewhere. And they're like, well, there's the phone book. So I open up the phone book and, and really, like, I, I didn't understand Alcoholics Anonymous and it didn't occur, me that, occur to me that I needed to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I called Addiction Services and it was in the phone book. And I got somebody. And they said, well, we can set up an appointment, but it won't be for two, three weeks. And I went... And uh, I, I, I don't think you're quite understanding what I'm saying. I need to go somewhere today or I am going to die. And I don't know where those words came from, but it was the truth. For once in my life, I was reaching out, I was asking for help, and I was telling the truth. And she said, well, I suggest you call a place called Larson House. It's in the phone book. So hang up the phone and I look up Larson House and, and I had no clue what Larson House was. <laughs> and so I call there and they said, sorry, we're full. <laughs> so as it turns out, I was talking to a lady named Pearl and I said, Pearl, you can't be full. I need to be there today. And she said, sorry, we're full. No, I don't think you quite understand. I need to come there today. And she said, call back at 4.30. We'll see what we can do. So that was probably about 1 in the afternoon. Between 1 and 4.30, I had devised a plan on how to steal the last three beer out of my friend's fridge and run away. What I was going to do, I don't know. Go sit outside their house, minus 40, and drink these three beer, and my life would be okay again. But that's that cunning, baffling, powerful part, right? I'm reaching out for help, and I'm saying, please, please help me. And on the other hand, I'm still trying to get away with it. And it was such a battle inside of me. So I called back Larson House that day, and they said, we found a spot for you. Come right away. So these two guys, they got in their truck and loaded me in, and they took me. And uh, we stopped at Shoppers Drug Mart, and they bought me a toothbrush, and they bought me soap, and they bought me toothpaste, and they bought me a pair of sweatpants at, like, Walmart or somewhere. Like, it's all really fuzzy, but I went in, and I had two bags that were, like, brand-new stuff. And um, I was scared. I was so scared. I didn't know. Um, 
it's wild looking back on it because we pulled up and they said, I think we forgot to get you something. I'm like, what's that? Well, I I know you don't smoke, but we're kind of thinking that you might need some packs of smokes in there because <laughs> I think it's like jail. And, <laughs> and like these two guys that came and got me, they are not alcoholics. They're, well, who knows? But like they, they are not, they have no clue of what Alcoholics Anonymous is, what detox is or anything. And they're telling me, well, you know, if you trade smokes, you know, you're, your roommate might take it easy on you tonight. <laughs> Full of fear. Like <laughs> so I, I remember, and, and here's where my recovery starts. I walk through the doors there, and um, this little old lady, and... Um, she may have been a nun or a nurse or something. She's doing my intake and she's pressing on my liver and saying, oh, I, I think you've been drinking a lot. <laughs> yeah, this is detox. And, and she, she says to me, and these are freeing words to this day. She says, has anybody ever told you you don't have to drink today? And that was amazing to me. Nobody had ever told me that I don't have to drink. And just for today, right? And she wasn't in the program. She just worked there. <coughs> My recovery started there. I spent 10 days in, in detox. I slept a lot. I went to AA meetings that were all in-house. They didn't let us leave for the first five days. And we all had chores to do, hey? I hadn't made my bed in 20 years. And here they're going, you got to make your bed every morning. Really? I don't like it here. You guys are telling me what to do. And, uh, and they said, if, if you want to stay sober, you have to take these suggestions. You have to do what we're telling you to do. And I remember my first walking pass out of there. I was five days sober. I hadn't been five days sober in 20 years. Or 15, probably. And I remember walking halfway to the coffee shop and walking back, turning around and going back to the safety of detox because I was scared. I was full of fear. I didn't know if I ran into somebody, if I could say no, if I could tell them the truth. And I went back to the safety of detox. And I got out on, uh, on a Wednesday, and they told me to go to a meeting. So I did. My first meeting was Fresh Air Group. My second meeting was Shamrock Group here in Saskatoon. And um, forever grateful. My first meeting, I walked in the doors there. And there were these two old guys, and, and uh, for those of you in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know that I call lovingly, I call them my old bastards. Um, but there were these two old guys, Alec and Jack M, and they're sitting there and they're arguing about fishing. <laughs> and I felt at home. Um, my second meeting, that same two old guys were at that next meeting the next night. 
And after the meeting, the one guy pulled me aside and he says, you're going to have a choice to make and you might as well make it right now. You can either be in this program or you can live on the outside edges. And trust me, it's more fun. You'll get all the rewards you've ever, ever dreamed of and then some if you live in this program. Join it. And I'm forever grateful for those guys telling me what to do because I didn't know. I was lost. So they said uh, 90 meetings in 90 days. Um, so I did that. I actually did two meetings a day. By this point, I had lost my job. Uh, I had been fired. And um, I owed $18,000 for the cattle that were in Prince Albert. And they still were not in Missouri. So, and that was one of the little pieces of the wreckage of the past that we talk about. Um, I had a whole bunch of other things um, that I had to repair, that I had to work on. And, um, and it's funny, I got a sponsor right away, and that sponsor said to me, you write it down, you write down the wreckage of the past, you write down what you need to work on today. And then you cover up everything except for the top item. That one item that keeps you up at night, that goes to the top. And you work on that one thing. You don't even look at the rest of that list. And you work on that one thing until that one thing is solved. And for me, the cattle were kind of a priority. <laughs> so... Um, I started going to meetings, and, uh, and like I said, I went to two a day, three a day on Fridays. Um, and slowly, I started to learn what to do. You know, you guys said, have candy bars or something. I had Wonder Bars everywhere, like my glove box. I had Wonder Bars melted on the dash of my truck. <laughs> it, was, it was insane. Um, so I, I went to meetings, I listened, I did what I was told to do. So the 90 days go by and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to get a big gold star or something like that. I did 90 meetings. I did more than 90 meetings. And you know what they said to me? They said, do another 90. <laughs> That's it. Like go to more meetings, keep going. And, um, after four months of sobriety, I was able to call my boss, my ex-boss, and uh, he was flying into town from Chicago, and we went for lunch. Now, this man knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous, and he knew nothing about drinking, um, but we went for lunch at Earl's, and, um, and we sat down across from each other. And we talked about it. And we talked about what I had done. And uh, he asked me how I was going to fix this. And I told him that I was working on a way of getting the cattle to Missouri. That I was working on a way of getting them paid for. But it sure would be helpful if I could work. And... Um, And you know what he did? He gave me my job back. But it was different. I was no longer the general manager. 
I had to spend my summer in the city and go to meetings. And I would work out of the Saskatoon office, and I was on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and when they called, I needed to jump. And he explained this to me, and he said, if you drink, you're fired. If you stay sober and do what you're supposed to do, what you're telling me you're currently doing, I get back the best employee I've ever had. And, you know, I walked out of that meeting saying, I have to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Like, because it wasn't on my terms, right? Like, here, I have to go back, and I, I can't go up north. That's the reason why. Like, I had every reason in the world. And, and, you know, I went and talked to the old bastards, and, and they tuned me in. They said, shut up, take the job, you know, go back. Go back and do this sober. You know, and they were straight up. They told me the truth. And they've always told me the truth when I didn't want to hear it. So I ended up getting these cows back (laughs) to Missouri. We actually took them to Montana and then on a semi from there, and they ended up there. And, um, And I did get that job back. And for that first year, and here's the insanity of getting sober. My new boss, who I did not get along with, and he knew that if I stayed sober, his job might be in jeopardy, would come into my office every single day and put a bottle on my desk. He did that for a year. And I'd walk out of that office and I'd call my sponsor and I'd say, Norm, (laughs) I'm going to kill him. (laughs) I'm going to kill him. And then, uh, yeah, death isn't good enough for this guy. And he'd go, go to a meeting. You're not allowed to make decisions. You're not allowed to quit. Because I did want to quit. I wanted to walk away. I wanted to run away from my problems. And he said, you have one year. You have to do this for one year sober. And at the end of that one year, if things do not change, you can quit. And you know what? Ten months sober, that guy that put a bottle on my desk every day got fired. And I got my original job back. And that is a miracle. A, that I didn't drink (laughs) or quit and run away. Because I had never completed anything in my whole entire life. So as my recovery moves on, (laughs) and and this is the best part, there's hope. That whole first year, my hope was building and and that that I could live free. You know, the big book talks of the promises and it, it talks about being happy, joyous, and free. Free from the bondage of self and and really a lot of my disease was rooted in my selfishness and self centeredness. So as I progressed through the steps, my step one that I was powerless and my life was unmanageable, that's pretty obvious probably to everybody in this room that my life was unmanageable. And, uh, and coming in Alcoholics Anonymous, it was pointed out to me. So my step two came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. 
<laughs> wow. When can that happen? Like step two is still my favorite. I, I absolutely love step two because I was insane. I kept expecting different results, even though my actions didn't change. My thinking didn't change. And by coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, my thinking changed. And as my thinking changed, my actions changed. And as a result of my actions changing, those problems in my life, the wreckage of the past, started to get solved. And I had to talk about it. And I had to talk about it all the time. So I was a member of Floral, like Marty said. And um, I was two years sober. And I got a letter from Revenue Canada explaining that that $86,000 was still owing, regardless of whether I was sober or not. And, um, and it was still a secret. I hadn't told anybody. And it was eating me up alive. Two years sober, and I'm carrying a big secret still. And I'm at Floral, and I can no longer keep it inside, and we're downstairs. And finally, I'm like, I owe Revenue Canada lots of money. <laughs> and I'm crying, and it's just bad. And... Um, you know, a miracle happened. Almost every single one of those guys around the table put up their hand and said, I owed Revenue Canada too, and this is what I did. All in a row. And they shared with me, and I shared with them. And as a result of that, the answers came. My higher power speaks to me through other people. When I'm able to be honest and tell everybody the truth and say, this is what's happening in my life today and I'm hurting. You know, and as a result of having that meeting that night, I paid Revenue Canada back. It took me five years. And it was hard. And I wanted to quit. You know, and there were people that said, just file for bankruptcy. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, my accountant told me to do that. And I said, no, if I do that, I'll get drunk. If I take the easy way out, I will get drunk. And if I get drunk, I will die. And that didn't make sense to outside people. But it made sense to the people I hung out with. The people who had become my friends. So... Great reward, hey? I, uh, <laughs> I'm seven years sober now, and I'm told early on, build your steps, one, two, three, one, two, three, because one day you're going to rely on this foundation. So my step three that I turned my will and life over, that for me was a no-brainer. Um, I turned my will and life over to booze, and it was a power greater than myself um, for years. And there's got to be something out there, and I've came to believe that it's God, and he speaks to me through other people when I'm honest. But that power that outweighs that other power of booze in my life is God. So I just flipped it around. I turned my will and life over to booze for years. Every action, every thought, everything I ever did revolved around drinking, 
or getting the money to drink. So it was real easy for me to turn my will and life over to something else other than alcohol. And in, in the beginning, it was something else, you know. And, uh, and for me today, it's, it's God. And uh, he does speak to me through other people. Last night in our, in our seminar, it's amazing. I know when, uh, when I'm getting off my path, all of a sudden I'm running into alcoholics and Al-Anon people everywhere. Like you're shopping and there's eight of us in the store and then there's one in the parking lot and there's somebody honking at you, waving, hey, have a good day, you know? And it's, it just brings me back to center, hey? Because we're everywhere. We really are. Until you come into these rooms, I always say I knew half of Saskatoon when I drank and when I got sober I met the other half. You know, because we are everywhere. It is truly amazing. And you're always in my path when I need you the most. So I'm seven years sober, and um, I kind of take back some self-will. Marty and Michelle are laughing at me at this point. But I marry another alcoholic. And uh, I probably would not recommend this. (laughs) And, and, and to this day, you know, there's a speaker I listen to who who talks about um, love, hey, and that we never truly fall out of love. We just get tired of getting hurt. And um, that pretty much sums it up. I um, I still love her. And I love who she was. And she is no longer part of my life. And as a result of that marriage, I have a wonderful seven-year-old boy who will tell anybody's family member that's struggling with alcohol, just don't drink, go to meetings, it's that easy. (laughs) (laughs) Who knew, eh? And for those of you that know Christopher, you know that's the truth. Like, he just, he's been coming to meetings since he was about seven days old. And uh, he knows you all. And he knows who we are. And, um, and both of us just know that his mom is sick. It's not that she's not a good person. She's just sick. And that's the way it is for some of us. So through that marriage, in the end, it, it was hard. And I, I didn't have Alan on in my life at all. And, um, and I tell you what, in the end... <laughs> Well, I got to give credit to every person here that is living with an active alcoholic. Because you know what? At the end, I was sober, but I was crazier than she was. Absolutely. And, and at one point, I said to her, If you're not drinking, I'm crazy and I need to be locked up because these things aren't adding up. And it rocked my foundation. Like, it absolutely took me to my knees again. And and I had to walk through the doors of Al-Anon now, not knowing anything, not knowing how to live again. I can deal with my alcoholism, but I sure can't deal with somebody else's. And I'm surrounded by drunks. You know, I'm sponsoring people that are getting drunk. My wife's drunk. It was just total chaos. And you know what? I, I did eventually walk away from that relationship, and, and I, um, I went to Al-Anon, and, and Al-Anon gave me the freedom to be okay with those decisions. 
I um, I wanted that marriage. I wanted that. Like, wow. Um, so that was hard. And you guys gave me that freedom. And um, the amazing part about that journey, looking back on it now, it's given me more freedom and it's allowed me to know deeper who I am, what I want, how I want to act, and how I want to be a partner to somebody else. And the amazing part, through all of that hard time, there were other alcoholics there with me, walking. When I didn't want them there, they were there every step of the way. And that's one of those true gifts of sobriety and, and being part, being part of Alcoholics Anonymous. They know when we're hurting and they're there. And it truly is amazing. So to kind of wrap this up, I'm going to tell you guys a little bit about um, the gifts that I've received. I'm a dad. And uh, the amazing thing is, okay, I'm not going to cry. <laughs> Three years ago, I lost my grandfather. And uh, the cool thing is, he was in Sherbrooke. He had Alzheimer's. I got to sit there with my dad and be there when he died. That doesn't happen without AA. Without AA, I'm drunk, I'm selfish, I'm self-centered, and I'm not there for one of the greatest moments I've ever had in my recovery. I got to be a son to my dad. I got to be grandson to my grandpa. What can I say? It, uh, freedom. Absolute freedom. And he passed away January 2nd, and we had a lot of laughs, and I was present. And I can't say that for my drinking years. My last few years of drinking, I didn't go home at Christmas. And if I did, it was for short spurts. I didn't want to be around family because I didn't want them to see where I was at. What a change. You guys changed my heart. You guys have been right every time. And no matter what I'm going through, I know the 12 steps are there. They're there to help me with my job. They're there to help me with my relationships. They're a blueprint for my living. And the promises do come true. 
you know, everything in my life today, all of the freedoms that I have, the big book talks about um, happy, joyous, and free. I, I would have sold myself short. We heard that last night. Like, my first year of sobriety, if you would have asked me to write down all my hopes and dreams, <laughs> it would have been like, don't live in this parkade. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we don't think much of ourselves. We don't think we can accomplish or finish things. But we're truly gifted. Like, how, how else are we able to do what we do when we're active, right? Job, family, drinking, drunk, all this. Like, we're, we're gifted at keeping her all together until we're not. And then it all just implodes. But you take the booze out, and it's limitless. Absolutely limitless. What we can do, and, and the wreckage of the past can be repaired. I've had the freedom to travel a lot, and everywhere I go, there's Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is a gift as well. Um, I am truly grateful today for my sobriety. I love my life today and every single thing that I've ever received since I got sober is due to Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you.